Welcome to You Sound Like a Girl. I'm Colleen, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am Emily Rose, and my pronouns are also she, her, hers. And you are listening to You Sound Like a Girl, a storytelling project that explores and elevates cis and trans women's stories about our voices. We aim to explore the social norms around cis and trans women's voices by investigating what it means to sound like a woman and what it means for women to use our voices. On today's episode, we want to welcome Alice Herb, she, her. Alice was born in Vienna, Austria on February 17, 1933. She arrived in the United States on March 9, 1939. She received her BA from Syracuse University and her JD and LLM from New York University School of Law. In her life, she's worked as a clinical professor of family practice and OBGYN at SUNY Downstate Medical Center, an ethics consultant to multiple New York hospitals, an attorney, and a TV news and cultural affairs producer, director, and writer. Alice also lent her voice to the 2018 and 2019 productions of You Sound Like a Girl, and will be sharing one of her stories with us today. So Alice, whenever you're ready, take it away. Well, my story, my most memorable story of that period in my life, when I was five and a half, sort of five and three quarters, was Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht was the 10th of November, 1938. And Kristallnacht was as a result of some damage that had been done by an attacker. There had been an increasing number of assaults and offenses towards Jews throughout 1938 since the Germans had moved in. And on that particular day, they had already moved all the Jews living in the building into my aunt's apartment where we were living at that time. And we were sort of just milling around when these guys with heavy boots came clomping in and looking around and being very upsetting and, and abusive. And then they said, all the men in this room will come to us. At this point, I flew into my father's arms, put my arms around his neck and started to scream and screamed and screamed and screamed. And they kept saying, calm her down. There was no way they were going to calm me down one way or the other. This was my father. He wasn't going anywhere. And after much to do, everybody was in anguish over what I was doing. My mother couldn't do anything. My father couldn't do anything. I just kept on screaming. And finally, these horrible men looked at the group and said, calm her down. We'll be back later. And they left. And everybody heaved a sigh of relief. And actually, in retrospect, we all knew that if it happened a year later, they would have taken out their guns and shot both my father and me dead because at that point it had become really violent. But at this point, there was my father and I wouldn't let go. I was, I was killing him myself because I was holding on so tight. And finally they coaxed me down and we sat there nervously for the rest of the day waiting for them to come back. After a while, the people who didn't belong in the apartment, the neighbors, sort of went back to their own apartments and we were left to our own advice, devices, which was my mother, my father, and my aunt. My uncle had already left what was then Palestine. And it was a very large apartment, which is why everybody was gathered there. And my mother tried to keep me occupied. My mother, who was not exactly a calm person, for some reason was as calm as could be and decided to teach me how to knit at that point. And actually, if you want to know, that's when I learned how to knit. By the end of the day, I really knew how to knit. 
and we had some dinner. I mean, it wasn't exactly what you would call dinner, but it was time for me to go to bed. And I refused to go to bed until my father came and laid down in the bed with me. And I put my arms back around his neck. And there we were. And I wouldn't go to sleep. And I wouldn't go to sleep. I was just holding on. And then the, the back door, there was a knock on that door, and it was the Gestapo. And they came in, and they checked the rooms, and they said, we are sealing this apartment, and you may let nobody else in. So just stay there and do as we tell you, and you may only use the back door. And so it was. By that time, it was 9 o'clock at night. It was about 8 hours later. And finally, I think out of complete exhaustion, I fell asleep. My father, I think, had pain in his neck for days afterwards, but I never asked about that. The next day, we all got up, and everybody was very nervous. And for some reason, I don't know what it was, nobody came back, nobody tried to come to us. And so there we were isolated in the apartment, and it was decided my father had to go out and do the errand. And I don't know what the errand was, um, but my mother looked at me and said, you will go with your father. And I said, no, I don't want to go. I was scared out of my mind, and I didn't want to go. And I said, no, no, no. And my mother said to me very sternly, you have to go out with your father because you're going to protect him. And so I immediately got dressed and got ready to go out with him. And my father said, don't worry, everything will be okay. And the two of us went out. And we walked over and we passed the synagogue that my family belonged to, and it had been burned to a crisp. And everything was down. And as you looked in, there was a pile of rubble. And on top of that was a Torah, which was the holy book. And, you know, I still see that image in my head to this day. And from that day on, my father never left the house without me. I went with him everywhere. And finally, my father had decided that um, we would have to leave and get, come to the United States, which had been a very tricky thing for him. He had worked very hard for that. He was really fantastic. But he had to wait online until it got to our number. And it was like every day for like three months we had to do that. And finally, we got our visas. And finally, I don't remember whether it was the day before or the day after my birthday, when I was six years old, which was in February, we left. And then we had ship reservations in Holland. So how do we get to the ship coming from Vienna to Rotterdam? And the route was either to go straight through Germany, which had a certain amount of risk, or in the alternative to drop down into Italy through France and up into the low countries to Rotterdam. But then there was a risk that we wouldn't be able to make it on time to make the ship. So my father said, well, in an old expression, let's cut the tail off at one time and let's not do it in pieces. We're going through Germany. And so we got on the train finally with only the amount of stuff that they allowed us to take with us. And we took off for Germany. That was a 20-hour trip at that time. And of course, we were all exhausted from the horror that had been going on during that time. But none of us had been taken away. A cousin of mine who had been sent to a concentration camp did come out, and he and my aunt, who was his mother, took off for Palestine. And so there we were on the train, and maybe our trip was going to be a success. I think my parents were quite nervous. And at some point, we heard heavy boots again, and I had fallen asleep, and they rudely woke me up. I mean, really jerked me up, because they wanted to see the pillow that I was sleeping on to see if we were taking out, quote-unquote, contraband. 
And when it wasn't, they just let me go back on the pillow and they left. And what that was, was the border patrol. And at that point we were in Holland. And the next thing I knew, we were there in Rotterdam and there were these lovely Dutch people with signs up saying in German what the various cities of Austria were and the people who were getting off the train, they were bringing people into their homes until their ships left. And we we saw the sign from Vienna, which is W-I-E-N in German. And so we got out and the woman looked at my mother and greeted us very warmly and asked my mother if she could cook. And my mother said, yes. And so she said, well, you're so welcome in the house. They don't like my food. They want Viennese food. But if you cook, I'll take care of your daughter for the week that it'll be before your ship leaves. And so it was, my mother did the cooking and this nice woman, this nice lady, took me all over Rotterdam. And the biggest thrill of my life was she took me on an escalator that had blue lights on the side. and. She went up and down with me until I tired of this game. She was wonderful. I don't remember much more about that time except getting on the ship. And it was a horrible journey of 13 days between the end of February and the beginning of March, the worst time on the Atlantic with storms. And my mother was violently ill and kept wanting to be thrown overboard. And my father and I were hardy individuals who had sea legs. And the two of us enjoyed the most incredible food. We were taken up to the first class quarters because nobody was coming up. We were, of course, in steerage. But they didn't want to waste the food, so they brought us up. So every meal was absolutely a delicacy. And the crew sort of took care of me. They liked my curiosity. So for 13 days, I wandered around with the crew. And then I was awakened by my father and told, take a look, there is the Statue of Liberty. And so it was that we arrived in the United States. And I fell in love with New York from that very moment. And I still am. So you have told us this story about being five years old and saving your father's life using your voice, literally, right? Screaming until the Nazis left you all alone, at least for the time being. So did that demonstration stop all of the men from being taken away? Or did it save your father only? Only my father. The rest of them went. I don't really know what happened to them. I don't think they were I don't think they were sent to concentration camps. I think they came home, but they were terribly humiliated. What was happening at that time, particularly the oh, the religious Jews were really tormented. The ones with beards had their beards cut off and you know the side curls that they wear uh, were cut off and they were told to clean the sidewalk with toothbrushes. I mean, it was really humiliating and horrendous. Fortunately, um, we didn't live in the ghetto. We lived in, you know, integrated part of Vienna. And fortunately, not much happened to us on the street. But you could see it happening. And you heard it happening. And it was after a while, when after my aunt left for Palestine, we had to join a cousin who did live in the ghetto. And then it was sort of a lockdown. Maybe that's why I survived this pandemic as well as I did. I'm used to these horrible things happening. At least I wasn't worried about people coming in and killing me. Right. But I I don't know. You know, we go back. uh, What I do want to say is 
just because we came away unharmed in some ways. We were very, very harmed in a very basic way. These thoughts come back to me now. I, I, my heart goes out to anybody who's in this experience. Children do feel what's going on. They, if they're protected by their parents, as I was, I continue to be a child in many ways. But I really did not have a childhood in the ordinary sense of the word. I've been very careful to be very independent and self-sufficient. And I've always worried about survival in the sense of, can I do this? Could I survive on my own if all else failed? And so I've become quite resourceful. It's, it's a terrible thing that happens. And we visited on our children as well. My surviving son and I have had troubles. And he said, you know, you're overwhelming. You're always there. I mean, my son is pretty old at this point. He's going to be 60 next month. And he said, enough already. Right. So, but it is a lifelong thing. And the cousin that I'm closest to is sort of a kissing cousin. But she was a hidden child in Poland. And it's been a terrible experience for her. Her mother made her promise never tell anyone that she was Jewish and she was supposed to be Catholic. And she believed she was Catholic and she wasn't told that she was Jewish until she was 11 and had come to the UK. And she said it was the worst moment of her life because she had been told to hate Jews. So, you know, things happen. And what happens with her children, she still to this day is like a helicopter mom. Right. And what happened after that, which I didn't realize until I was in my 60s, was that my family began to think, well, they thought that I was their savior and that nothing would happen to them as long as I was there. But I did find out how much they thought of that I was this magic person, which obviously I was not was when I was in my, I think I was in my 60s when my father was diagnosed with something or other and needed an operation. And I couldn't cancel what I was doing because I was in television at the time and we had booked a filming in California. And I said, it can't be there. I know this is not going to be life-threatening. And so it's not going to be bad and I'll come back as soon as I can. And I went left for the coast and did the filming, but we finished early. So I rebooked and came back to New York and went, I went directly to the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, um, the elevator stopped on the second floor, which was the room of, of the recovery room. And I heard this loud voice coming down in the gurney and recognized it was my father's voice. And he was screaming at the four orderlies who were bringing him down the road. And I said, be quiet. Well, it's Two orderlies were very upset with that. And I said, it's okay, it's my father. They wheeled him into the elevator. We went up to the room that he had been assigned. And as they pushed the gurney into the room that he was assigned, my mother and another aunt were sitting there waiting for him. And my father lifted his head and said, it's okay, she's here. Everything will be fine. And I thought, horrified, what does that mean? All they did was show up. <laughs> And after I thought about it and discussed it at length with my therapist, it was that all those years they thought as long as I was around and could be there when something terrible happened, nothing would happen. Of course, in the meantime, I lost my son and my two husbands, both of whom died, as did my son, my older son. And I wasn't a magic person, clearly. And maybe they were disappointed that I wasn't. But there it is. That's a lot of pressure to put on one one family member, one person. 
And you mentioned briefly, you know, coming to the the States and being here with your family. What was that transition like for you as a kid? Well, I was very disappointed when we arrived. I have to tell you this story. I was very disappointed because I'd been told there'd be skyscrapers. And we arrived in in New Jersey. And all there were were gray, ugly buildings and it was raining. But what was the big surprise was when we got off the ship and waited for customs to come and check us out. My father was paged and he looked very upset. He thought we were going to be deported. But instead, the doors opened what to me was like 10 miles down the road. And this gorgeous car, a, a custom Lincoln, started slowly moving towards us and stopped in front of us. And I thought this was going to be a good place to live if that's who picks us up. <laughs> And our benefactor apparently was a very, very rich man and felt his responsibility and sent his secretary and the chauffeur, both of whom spoke German, to pick us up. And this wonderful chauffeur, after I talked and talked and talked, of course, to him, uh, stopped in front of the Empire State Building and said, look up. And I got out of the car and looked up. And of course, that was when I wrapped my arms around the Empire State Building. But they had also rented a room for us. And there were friends who were already here who were there and said, you have the address, come up and see us. So we got to the rooming house that they got for us, checked into the room that we had, and went up that very same day on the subway to Washington Heights to have dinner with our friends. So it was very exciting. And I refused to go to a German kindergarten and insisted on being enrolled in, uh, in public school immediately. And my teacher was absolutely wonderful. She sat me next to a little girl who had come six months or a year earlier and knew, could understand and speak English by then. And she was allowed to translate for me. And then this teacher recommended, it was, you know, it was the spring term. So she recommended the local synagogue that had a, what was probably a summer camp, you know, day camp for children, and told my mother to enroll me there. And it was on the same block as the school and where we lived. And so we sp I spent the summer in this um, summer camp. And by the time the summer was over, I understood, if, if not speaking quite well, but I understood most of the English. And by the end of the the fall semester, we moved to another apartment and we moved up to Washington Heights because another aunt and uncle had arrived and we were going to live together. And I was enrolled in yet another school. And when I was enrolled, my uncle took me and I was put into second grade. And the little boy sitting next to me said, why is a foreigner bringing you in? You're American. I had already lost my accent. So it was barely a year later. Wow. Were you sad about that or, or excited? No, I was so absolutely determined and motivated to be 100% American that that was the nicest compliment that could be given to me. And six weeks later, the principal came in, called my name and said, you're skipping to 2B. You know too much here. You have to go to the next grade. So I skipped to 2B. And of course, I was thrilled went home and my parents weren't home, but there were neighbors who were friends of my parents. And I went there and the woman was so sweet. She made a lovely lunch to celebrate my being. I skipped in school. When I went back to school, we were supposed to read. And this was a very strict teacher in 2B. And I opened up the book and the first word I saw, I didn't know what it meant. And I didn't know how to pronounce it. And I thought if she ever, ever calls on me, I'm, 
I'm, I'm dead in the water. And the word was alas. And to this day, when that word comes up, I see that teacher's face in front of me. And I, I will say, I remember one of the first times that we met, you were uh, running a little late because you had been coming from a protest for the uh, camps at the Mexican border. And I know that you feel pretty strongly about immigration, understandably so. And so I'm wondering, what are ways that you feel like you have used your voice to advocate for immigrants to the states? And, and what can maybe our listeners take from that and do themselves? Well, obviously, anytime immigration comes up, I'm, I'm right there. I know what refugees feel. Although I must say my experience was much milder than the people that you probably have heard from and that are going on right now. But I was howling and screaming about when those children were put into cages. And I'm now heavily investing what I can afford to make sure that voter registration, that um, gerrymandering, that... Um, voter suppression and all of that is taken care of. And I'm very happy that I chose the Brennan Center for Justice. I'm a graduate of NYU Law School, and this is this organization was founded to honor you know, United States Supreme Court Justice uh, William Brennan. It seemed to me much more useful to try and get rid of the hatred and bias by law and make sure that this could not happen here. I was really quite worried throughout the last two years. I knew what was going to happen when I didn't know how bad it was going to be. But as soon as Trump was elected, I was on pins and needles how we were going to get rid of him. So I've done what I could. I had a group here that wrote petitions. I contributed and did correspondence. And I, I don't go at this point in my life, at my age, I don't, I never did like demonstrations where people just screamed and yelled because I thought all they did was scream and yell and then not do anything. They patted themselves on the back and left. But that's not entirely true. But I also, when I worked for ABC, I was sent down to Washington to cover some of the demonstrations. And I was always appalled at how badly they were covered. People were really quite well behaved and knew what they were doing. So the assault on the Capitol was another assault on my whole experience. I didn't think that could ever happen here. I'm very, very attached to this country, but not in the way of the extreme right. As you can tell, I'm very blue. <laughs> We've talked with other folks on this podcast and as a part of the You Sound Like a Girl theater piece um, a couple of years ago about women, girls, femmes, being silenced. There is a culture, as certainly in the United States, of expecting women to sort of be seen and not heard. And you are talking about essentially having the opposite experience where being louder than anyone else not only saved a life, but your parents were sort of like, okay, you're going to do this forever. Like, this is now your job for us. Have there been times in your life when people have been like, you know, you need to quiet down, you need to be smaller. And how did you deal with that, if so? Oh, that was never going to happen. In many ways, my family can take a lot of advantage of me, and people always yell at me about that. But my mouth never stays shut. I mean, there was a point when my first husband died and left me with two small children. It was kind of tough. And I must say that I restrained myself a little bit not to lose jobs, but I usually told people off. And when I was practicing law, judges could become pushy. One of them called my um, 
boss and asked him if he could date me, to which my boss at that time said, why are you asking me? She's got a husband, call him, which everybody thought was very funny. And it's not funny, but he left me alone. So in a sense, my boss had actually protected me, if you will. But I didn't need that kind of protection because in my interview with him, he wanted to know why I wanted the amount of money that I had asked for as my salary. He said, why are you demanding such a high salary? You're married. And I, I levitated at that point. I think I just raised myself off the chair and said, if your grandfather had died and left you a trust, would you take less money? And he turned beet red. And you know what was funny? His grandfather had left him a million dollar trust. <laughs> I came home from that interview and said to my husband, I'm not going to be hired there and I don't want to work there anyway. But 10 days later, I got a call saying you're hired at the higher pay. So, you know, I, my mouth was always open. And, I, you know, with adversaries, I took absolutely no guff from people I saw in court. I was constantly being threatened with being um, held in contempt because I wouldn't put up with what the judges were doing or how they favored their friends. So I, I remember one judge in, in Brooklyn said to me, if you ever come to my courtroom again, I will do in contempt forever. And I said, okay, judge, that's fine. I think a lot of it is my, all the women in my family were very strong. And the men were respectful of that. My father was very much, my father always said to me, I could do anything I wanted. There were no bars. And so I, you know, when I entered, law school, he was thrilled. You know, he didn't have that kind of prejudice. And both of my husbands were basically feminists. You know, they were, they knew that this was important, that women be equal. So what can I say? I would advocate, but in a different way, because women were scared. And sure, I was scared at times that I would be fired and I would moderate what I was saying, but they knew right away because of what I was doing work-wise that I could really burst out at any time. Does that answer your question? I'm saying that things happen when you don't speak up. Right. Well, I think, I think we can maybe move on to our final question of the episode. Okay. So at the end of each episode, we ask our guests and uh, both of our co-hosts to tell our listeners about a woman whose voice was exciting to them this past week or was speaking to them. Um, so Alice, whose voice have you brought for us today? I think that who I would mention right now is Michelle Obama. Before her, I probably would have said Eleanor Roosevelt. Both very good recommendations. <laughs> I've been meaning to read uh, Michelle's book for a while now. It's been on my uh, shelf, but I haven't gotten around to it. Oh, it's a wonderful book. You know, you really understand what it meant to mm -hmm. be Black. But I also read uh, Sotomayor's book. That's another one that we should all read. But these are very strong women. They survived, didn't they? And you're very strong, obviously, with your 10 jobs. All <laughs> you're very kind. <laughs> Um, Emily Rose, who would you like to offer to our listeners? So I'm going to recommend Jeanette Winterson. She's an author, essayist. She writes, you know, short stories, novellas, etc. But I recently read this short story. It's called The Poetics of Sex. And in it, she talks about words held hostage to manhood and she's talking about gendered language and 
she just writes about creating a space and in the metaphor she uses is an island, but she talks about creating a space explicitly for women and she herself is queer. So the idea is like to create this space for queer women because it's sort of like they don't need the male gaze or want the male gaze. And she's kind of arguing that the heterosexual world, because it involves men, has to be about men because that's like the patriarchy that we live under. I'm sure there's a lot more to be said, but I just loved the story so much and loved her exploration of talking about gendered language and how to escape the male gaze. Highly recommend really all of her work. I've, I have so many of her books, but um, Jeanette Winterson. I will tell you though, one of the things that's really troubling to me, men are here to stay is what I'm going to say. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was very active in the women's movement at a time when I was when I was still married to my second husband when, before he died. And what disturbed me at one of the meetings was it was a call to get rid of all men. I had a father, I had a brother, I had a husband, and I had two sons. Now, how was I going to get rid of those? And I wasn't about to get rid of them. I loved them. Certainly in what I'm talking about, I don't think that she is arguing that all men should die or be erased or anything like that. The idea is that there should be spaces where men aren't because the whole world is for men. So the idea is like there need to be spaces that are not for men. If everything is for them, then how can women and femmes really explore themselves? I think that that's so. Yes, women need to have some time because we had a women's group that met weekly at ABC and we achieved a great deal, but they, the men didn't realize how much women could do. And at the time when they said uh, women couldn't be producers over my dead body sort of thing, we just kept pushing. And the next thing you know, women were producing. The push that women can do whatever men can do, but in a different way was what was going on. But you know, that space that you're talking about is needed even within a community that grows up together, that has a particular ethnic and religious or whatever thing to be able to talk to each other openly. Yes. And I think that's true for women too. Absolutely, absolutely. The groups that feel most comfortable with each other need a space for themselves. So I'm very, very much interested in what you're telling me. I would like to look at it because we have to learn more and more. And I'm pretty old. You do know how old I am, right? Why don't you tell us for the record? 88. So I've been through a long life and we never stop learning. So I would really like to read what you're telling me about. Absolutely. And I will just offer very quickly... Um, my uh, voice that I would recommend to listeners this week, which I actually think is very well related to the conversation that we are having right now. Um, I have been listening to a podcast called Mob Queens, which is about Anna Genovese, who was a mob wife who was basically running things here in New York City, running bars um, and really taking over a lot of work from her husband. And, you know, 
looping this back to what we were just talking about, about queer spaces and women's spaces. She was a bisexual woman who was in a relationship with a woman and has just a tremendous story and is not often spoken about because she's overshadowed by her husband. Um, so the podcast is called Mob Queens, uh, Anna Genovese, and I highly recommend. Check it out. So Alice, is there anything that you would like to direct people's attention to, like a project you're working on or volunteer effort or something? First of all, I want to see people not starve. So I'm very much involved in St. John's of the Divine, the church up on 114th Street, the cathedral, and um, the holy apostles here in the village who are in actually Chelsea, who are feeding thousands of people. We can't have people hungry, number one. Number two, we've got to worry about that border. Yes, so the ACLU needs a lot of attention, as does anything that helps refugees, that helps lawyers change things. But most of all, I'm now very much involved with we need to get the legislation changed on all of these things. We've got to be able to talk to each other. I mean, we've got to become human again. Can't we accept that each person has the right to live their own life and the right to have a job? and to be able to support themselves and live their life the way they want to live it. I don't pass mm -hmm. judgment on anybody who lives a decent life. And when I say decent, it means being respectful of other people and their way of life and being attentive and sensitive to what other people need who are in need. So, you know, in effect, the Nazis taught me a great deal. I think they taught me how to be human to make sure that I push that and not be selfish and self-centered. I think that is a great note to end on. <laughs> I mean, not a great note, but a, <laughs> a powerful one. Thank you so much. It's been so great to talk to you this evening. We appreciate you sharing all your stories with us. Well, I was glad to do this. I was very happy to do it. Thank it's, you very much, fine. Alice. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. And I want to send a big thank you to everyone who's listening. Our co-hosts are me, Colleen Hughes. And me, Emily Rose Prats. I also edit our audio, and our researcher is Rachel Levins. Our music is Nice Girl, written and recorded by Reverend Yolanda. And one more time, a huge thank you to our guest, Alice. You can find You Sound Like a Girl at YouSoundLikeAGirl.com. Email us at YouSoundLikeAGirl at gmail.com. And find us on Instagram at YouSoundLikeAGirl. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye.